Hello, and welcome to Artbox DNV. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I interviewed Mark Kellner at his studio. Mark's practice records and manipulates imagery to disclose its contradictions as representations in life, as in false ideas and false icons. We talked about his humble beginnings, the materials he uses, and why. We also talked about social and political concepts he explores, capitalism, and what advice he would give to other artists. So, with that, sit back and relax and enjoy the interview. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. So, uh, for those who don't know you, could you introduce yourself and how you got your start or started in visual arts? Sure. Uh, my name is Mark Kellner, visual artist and a filmmaker, and I am based in Washington, D.C. And I've been uh, creative uh, my whole life, but it took a long time to figure out how to express that in a way that I think can be called every day. And so for many years, I worked on other people's projects. I worked uh, for a documentary film project right out of college. I worked for a theater company. After that job ended, no one told me that creative work is cyclical. Sometimes you're employed, sometimes you're not. And so I fell into that trap as well. And uh, I was a proto-hipster in, in the fact that I was one of the first people that I knew who had to move back to his parents' house after graduating college, after having a first job, because you can't afford to move in anywhere. And it wasn't great. And so I started working at someone else's art gallery. And I did really well at that in, in terms of just making sure everything's clean, opening and closing it on time. And the owner of the gallery said, look, we really like having you here. Why don't you consider bringing in projects of your own, kind of working as a curator if you want? My education is English cinema studies, but, you know, I'm a storyteller. And I took his advice, and because of my language skills in Russian, my, my parents came to America as refugees. I was born here, but my Russian was okay. I started engaging with Russian artists saying, hey, I have a space in Reston, Virginia to show art and it's next to a multiplex and there's a hotel there and it's kind of like a little bit of a tourist destination and would you consider letting me show you? And uh, most folks said, yeah, of course, we'd only be happy to be involved. And I would do Russian-themed shows in this suburb of Washington, D.C., Reston, and the craziest thing happened is that, yeah, okay, I sold pieces. That, that's fine. People would come to me, and I'm not snobby about this at all. People would come to me and say, hey, Mark, we have a red couch. Do you have anything that's red? And I'm not saying that's what art should be, but if that's a gear to get people involved in kind of expressing what they want in their homes, sure, I'm, I'm cool with that. But the caveat of all of this is that out of nowhere, American diplomats who are of service to our embassy in Moscow and at the time at the consulate in Leningrad found me. And uh, they'll be like, hey, Mr. Kellner, don't get excited. We're not interested in buying anything. <laughs> but would you be willing to come to our home to have a look at what our Russian art is? Because as diplomats, we were able to have access to these underground Russian artists that are really kind of unique, that are visually expressing spiritual themes, abstract art. At the time, any and all Russian art had to be of service to the state. You know, uh, Jason, you were telling me you're a set designer. If you're a professional artist... Well, no, you, technically I'm a scenic artist. Scenic artist, yes. okay. But uh, I apologize for that. Oh, no, that's but okay. A lot of people make that mistake all the time. The, the idea is your art has to serve 
the proletariat. Your yep. art has to serve the government. Yep. So to make sure that you're an official quote unquote artist, you would have to have a job in theater, in opera, as a sign maker. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you don't have any of that, you're an unofficial artist. And these unofficial artists were not allowed to be shown. There were no, there was no gallery system, but like there was maybe, you know, less than a hundred artists at the time that were making art for themselves, making art for art's sake. And the only audience that they had besides their families were these diplomats that were like, let's get this out of the Soviet Union and to people that actually could possibly appreciate it. Yeah. And... This isn't stuff that was very expensive at the time. I got to meet some diplomats who were in Russia in the 60s and 70s, and they maybe bought something that were souvenirs of their experience for maybe 200 maximum $300, okay, which they then went on to take with them for the rest of their careers. Right. You know? And when they retired back to Washington or the suburbs of Washington, a picture would be hung, and there it stayed until I walked into their living room. And got to know and got to tell them that, look, Russia is changing very rapidly and the price of oil is very high, which dictates that there is going to be a lot of disposable cash spent on this semi-legal Russian oligarch kind of class of folks that want their art back. They want to repatriate art back. And Sotheby's and Christie's have already done auctions so far as to kind of source this. And what I'd be interested in doing, if you'd have me, is uh, – as part of my English degree going to good use, as part of my, you know, fine arts background going to good use, I will photograph your art pieces. I will write essays about each artist. I'll create my own catalogs and let me go and show this art. So I asked while I was working in someone else's gallery, Europa is what it was called, I kind of took on this entrepreneurial thing mm. and saying, look, I'm at a weird situation where I don't know what this stuff could be worth, but I know it's worth something. And I made my first catalogs. I flew to London. I went to the first auctions that Sotheby's and Christie's was kind of showcasing these Russian arts. Now, I want to ask, what was the atmosphere like during that auction in London? No collector knew other collectors. People showed up hmm. just to start buying. And I was just shocked at the prices. Yeah. $50,000, $100,000, $200,000. Shocking, okay? And... I was at a point where I'm like, I can't believe this. And my broken Russian allowed me, and I guess my overconfidence and uh, not knowing who I'm talking to, allowed me to just walk up to people after the auction and say, in my broken Russian, hi, I'm representing diplomatic collections in Washington, D.C., and I'm pretty sure I can show you something that's three times the quality of what you just bought at, you know, half the price. <laughs> and I was able to get clients that way. Yeah. And I'm not calling myself a businessman in any way, shape, or form because this is just unexpected circumstances. But I sold a painting that belonged to a, an important American collector for a quarter of a million dollars. And you have to understand, like, I went to George Mason University. I didn't get a scholarship. I had to figure out how to pay for school, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. And I call up my dad and I'm like, Dad, how much do I owe you for school? And he's like, well, school was this and, you know, like you owe me nine grand for other expenses and whatnot. And I'm like, I just sold a piece for a quarter of a million dollars. It's actually a big triptych and it's actually was sold to a museum. Yeah. He's like, well, look, the Russians just, just wait you know, until the money came, the money came the next day. And I'm like, D dad, how much do I use? Like, you owe me nine grand. And I'm like, yeah, I think I got you. You know, <laughs> that, that, that happened. And I was on this ride 
for several years, kind of being a bridge between, I wouldn't even call them art collectors, just um, diplomats here in Washington. I would go to their homes. I'd do a good job for one family. And then that family would call up and recommend me to another family. Right, the word would spread. Yeah. yeah. And I got myself out of my parents' house in 2006. I was able to start, you know, I was always coming to DC as a suburban kid, but I was able to move out into a loft into like the U Street area that I wanted to always live in. And that was my entryway. The transactional aspect of that yeah. obviously was important. What's more important were the artists that I got to meet who also called me up and said, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm like, yeah, man, I, I know who you are. It's like, you should come to my studio. I want to have you in my studio visit. I want to show you things. And that really is the thing that changed my life. Hmm. So basically, through those experiences, you started to have this transition of really working and thinking about other projects that you wanted to do for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I put my own creative ambitions on hold, certainly to do this project. Yeah. But it was these artists that I were meeting that came to America in the 70s, like my parents did, that were making art that was very much rooted in this Russian-American duality. And they're coming from a school of, uh, when I say school, not like an education, but like there, there's a school of Russian art called Moscow Conceptualism. Mm -hmm. And it's about 20 to 30 folks making art in, I believe, to be a very original way looking at America through Russian eyes, kind of working in what became my own themes of intersecting capitalism and communism, advertising and ideology. I'm like, wow, man, I'm not alone. I lived isolated. My parents never wanted me to learn Russian. If you had any kind of Russian roots in Washington, D.C. in the 80s, it's very easy to label, oh, man, you're a spy, you're a commie, all that. I, I had to deal with all that stuff. It, my parents worked in the State Department, <laughs> you know, which, is, which, which, you know, it's all, you know, true. But the exposure I had to other artists for the first time was through that Russian lens. It would be important not to note that in the late 90s, my parents had a Russian artist move in with us. Uh, so he could just work freely. And he was supported by my folks just saying, hey, make whatever you want to make. And sadly, he passed away, I think in 1999. Mm. And his work just got left behind, you mm. know, and here in the States. And yeah. so I, again, just started putting together books. I, I tried to get other people's work to the attention of curators. And I, I sometimes I was successful, sometimes I wasn't. But I was exposed to artists who were the first to say, hey, you're not really an art dealer. You're, you know, like you're doing this, you know, maybe you came across some kind of lucky intersection, but you're a really creative person and it would be a shame to think of yourself as mercantile. I, I kind of would vouch for that. Yeah, you are, a, you're constantly creating. <laughs> you are I, like starlight at this point. <laughs> I, I always, I always was creating, but I, I just didn't have the discipline at the time. And I had to struggle with a lot of obstacles, I think, of my own making. And I'm not shy to talk about it, but I, I got myself together to a point where I'm like, I'm going to give this a try. And I think I got a lucky break. I mentioned the collector that allowed me to sell that really expensive piece of art. Mm -hmm. He passed away, I think, in 2011. And uh, I was lucky enough to write his obituary that got published wow. as a supplement to the Washington Post. We were really good friends, even though the age difference between us was 49 years. I would show him things that I'm thinking about and there is a writerly process to my work. My work isn't necessarily figurative in terms of like body or landscape and human face. I just see things differently and uh, I got to show him a little bit about it in 2011. This is, would be 10 years ago. And when he passed away and that piece, that obituary got published, I got a call 
from a professor at the Corcoran whose name is Dennis O'Neill. And Dennis ran the printmaking department at Corcoran and had a studio on his own property in like a, a house that would essentially be a, the backyard was a studio. Yeah. And he called me up in 2011 and said, hi, my name's Dennis O'Neill. I'm like, I'm like, Professor O'Neill, I know exactly who you are. Man. You're like the man. Like, I love what you do. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And I was already exposed to some of the scene of Washington, D.C., of art making in Washington, D.C., because I lived on U Street. I mm -hmm. go to openings at Hempel Fine Arts. You know, I obviously go to museums. But uh, Professor O'Neill, Dennis, said, hey, I would like to have you over. And he showed me what he does. And I started telling him what I want to do. And he's like, you should just come over and we should do this together. And uh, that was pretty much the end of my art selling career. <laughs> he really kind of exposed me to this is acrylic paint. This is paper. These are screens. These are squeegees. Right. Go and for it. he kind of walked me through this process. My, yeah. my entry point to any kind of visual culture was actually through movie posters. I kind of got to know history of, got to meet some of the artists, got to meet restorers. I lived in Los Angeles for a while working on a documentary film project I was mentioning after college. And I got to know some of his artists that were collaborators of his, people that worked with Hempel Fine Arts, you know, Russian artists, certainly. He went to Russia and got to know the guy that passed away. And when he calls me up, it's like, hey, man, you nailed it. That opened up a new door for me. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you, you got this exposure. So you started figuring out uh, what mediums you're working with, what ultimately drew you to the materials you work with mm -hmm. and, and kind of a why. So thank you for asking. When you're working at a print studio, you need to be flat. You need to be working with good paper that can absorb ink and kind of give you really good points of registration. And essentially, it's a stenciling process, okay? Mm -hmm. And you're painting with screens in a lot of ways. So I really, I like that. And, and certainly, those are things that we've done with Dennis in terms of like he was giving me an opportunity for, and I was paying for this, by the way. This wasn't just gratis, you know. I, right. I, this was... This was grad school to me as far as I'm concerned. I was okay. there three days a week and taking it very seriously, you know, earning my keep as best as I could. And and he was very generous with this whole idea of this is a collaborative studio. I want to help you bring out what you want to bring out. What I wanted to bring out was bigger than the the paper itself, Arches 88, uh, which is maybe about the, you know, 35 by 28 inches or so, 22 by 35 inches. Yeah. I can't remember off the top of my head. What I wanted to make was the same sketch that I was showing around, which gave me, to answer your question, this is the theme that I wanted to work in. And I had to figure out what material this needed to be. And the symbol that I wanted to go with was the red star, okay? I gave a great deal of thought as to what's my stuff going to be about? How is my stuff going to be different? And then how am I going to make it? Because I, I didn't have any kind of experience and been in artist studios, but no one's ever said, okay, let's get started. What do you want right, to do? Right. So the symbol of the red star is interesting to me for, for two things. Number one, the red star of Russia is very much a symbol of military might, psychological fear. A knock on the door in the middle of the night is, you know, something you never want to hear because you're never heard from again. Oh, yeah. And my parents left this very specific kind of life in hopes of giving me a better one. You know, I was conceived in Russia, born in Ohio, okay? And my parents were refugees. So can't say that I'm a refugee too because I'm really an anchor baby, so to speak. So you to know? speak, yeah. My experience was not their experience. But 
I always grew up in this cultural duality of two households. You know, I'd go to school in America, but the minute I come into the house, I'm not exactly in America. My parents are still speaking Russian. It's Russian food. It's Russian newspapers, even though they're published in America. You know, this idea of assimilation is happening with me. It's not necessarily happening with my folks. Okay. That is interesting. And, and, you know, they're also working in the Russian language. My mother is working at Voice of America. My dad's at the United States Information Agency. They've become federal workers where their expertise has everything to do with reading news in Russian to a Russian audience. So they're not like fresh off the boat, but they were not typical American parents. But they wanted me to have the typical American, oh, you know, go go to football games on, you know, like- Go to the like, mall. Yeah, like all that stuff. Yeah. And, and, I, and I did all that, but it, it's not something that we did together. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that my life is so interesting that I wanted to make work about my own life, but that disposition, that kind of disassociation with other folks did. And I want to get back to this idea of the Red Star. In America, driving on Rockville Pike, where we lived- I noticed that the red star is the logo of Macy's, <laughs> all right? Yeah. And I am like, okay, this red star, it's the same red star I noticed. And I, I'm saying this, I noticed this as a kid because I'm very visual. I'd go to movies. I, I you know, I, I, that was not just an escape from home, but that's how I became, going to the movies was the most American thing I could do. You know, yeah, I, no, I'm trying to think of his other things more American, and, and that's up there with him. To, to me, to me, it is. I mean, like, like that was really kind of what I did. I wasn't a big reader. I, I I'm not outdoorsy in that way, but uh, going to the movies is what I did. To the luck of my folks, they really never knew what was rated R, what was rated PG. I got to see a lot very uh, way too soon, and yeah. <laughs> uh, I developed a weird taste. And you know, American parents wouldn't be down with that. Like helicopter parents these days, it would oh, not be down days. with that. Oh, no, It'd be different. Oh yeah, but. I always had this idea of this cultural duality. So I tell Professor O'Neill, I'm like, look, here's my idea. I want to find quotes of, and I found quotes of Karl Marx representing the 19th century, uh, Lenin representing the 20th century, and Vladimir Putin representing the 21st century. I found these crazy quotes that they said about art, history, life itself. And I have found this ubiquitous topography that is objectified and commodified in Macy's advertisements. They've been doing the same ads, the same type since the 70s. I yeah. always paid attention on the graphic design part of my mind, has always been paying attention to letters, the kerning between letters, what, you know, what, what are these fonts, what, the, what are the name of these fonts, and I, I was always that nerd, so to speak. And let's sign it, each one, with the magic of Macy's is the slogan of Macy's. Let's call it the magic of Marx, the, <laughs> ma the magic of Lenin's, the magic of Putin's. Yeah. And I was really kind of taken that he loved it. And he's like, Mark, this is kind of cool because you're making it look like an advertisement and you're speaking in that advertisement language, but you're really talking about something else. And so there's a tension. There's something didactic going on. And his enthusiasm for our collaboration was really important to me saying, oh my God, maybe I got the stuff, you know, because I, I didn't do this as a kid. I did it in my 20s and, 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 and early 30s. Right. And I was just shocked that he dug it because, I mean, if he didn't, he'd be the first to say so. And so we chose to do something different in the studio. Rather than try this on paper, we worked on canvas. I would prime canvases over the course of several days and then lay down screens to see if this could work. And then the idea is to kind of wrap it around 
a piece of wood. It could be a half inch piece of wood or, you know, it should have been a three quarter inch piece of wood at the time. Mm -hmm. I had to, 10 years later, I had to fix exactly what I'm describing to you right now. Yeah. I'm like, okay, how do I take this concept further? And I'm saying this was in 2011. And what was happening in 2011 in DC was, especially in McPherson Park, was this idea of we are the 99%. You know, this, oh, right. this whole Bernie Sanders revolution was kind of like in- Just the beginning at that yeah, time. Yeah, like of, of what we now would assume as a brand of progressives or democratic socialism, whatever. This was just happening now. Oh, and, yeah. I remember that uh, clearly. And I was interested in like, wow, art making is happening in the streets. There are people making posters about this. And this is very much reflective of what was happening in communist times in the teens and 20s in advance during and after the, the Russian Revolution of, right. of 1917. I was like, there is parallels happening. And they're almost 100 years apart. You know, it's very interesting. And so I chose to make my art, not on paper, but canvas that is attached to wood because they can be used in practice as protest signs themselves, okay? And that's what we made, and it worked. And I'm like, wow, like this is the first piece of art I made. Let's go make something else. And so I kept on designing. I, I really didn't think of it as a fine art practice. It was kind of like a designing. Let's see if I can mess with the Texaco star. The Texaco star has a T attached to it. Maybe I can make a topography of Texaco stars, which I did and kind of create my own wordplay. So I think the next piece that I did was crucifix piece that it used the word Putin with using the T in the middle. Yeah. And I could frame that with Stalin. And it, it kind of worked out formally very nice creating a crucifix. All of Putin's letters were black, you know, kind of representing Russian oil. And Stalin was for blood because, you know, he killed, he's a mass murderer. Oh, yeah. And so I got to this place where my art is becoming this kind of intersection of Russian themes and I'm, I'm russifying American icons and I'm Americanizing Russian dominant visual culture. And it's not far removed from the guys whose studio I was in. And, you know, I would help them out when they asked me to come up and help them out physically, whatever it could be, whatever. I, I didn't care. I was honored to be in their presence. Yeah. And, um, all of a sudden, they're like, hey, this is working. This is working for you. Every once in a while, I'd get called on a money job, so to speak. My money job would be like, hey, someone is coming from Russia. They need a translator. Can you help them? You know, I would go to New York, for instance, and I'd stay in a hotel called the London Hotel, which is on 56th Street. And the London Hotel, and I'd be touring around New York City with, with these families, you know, because I essentially would know where to go. And, you know, I'm not going to cheat anybody, you know, I just family friends and yeah. friends of family friends, that kind of thing. And uh, they'd pay me, you know, because I needed a job. And uh, essentially, I noticed there was a Starbucks in the lobby of the London Hotel. Then across the street, there was another Starbucks. <laughs> and on the corner of 56th and 6th, a third Starbucks were being built all within about a <laughs> 500 foot area. Right. And that kind of cultural economic imperialism reminded me of a certain someone. So on my early piece of 2012, I took the logo of Starbucks and made it Stalin Bucks. Okay. And I made it because of that experience at the London Hotel. I'm also very aware that I'm trafficking in this idea of manipulating and distorting logos, which is very cliche and kitsch. But I'm embracing that. I, I recognize that, you know, me taking Colonel Sanders and making him into a Russian colonel 
is like, okay, haha, funny. But the more and more you see those pieces pop up that really turn into the Solaris exhibit, it becomes very dark very fast. And while I have the chance, I want to explain why Colonel Sanders is a seminal piece in my career. All of the stuff that I did early is incredibly important to what happens next because I actually think about this trajectory and progression of like where where I am, where I was, and where I'm going. And I try to think about it not just in terms of like what series I'm working on but per piece. I got a translation job for an oil guy from former Soviet Union. And we started in Florida. He's like, I want to go to Palm Beach. I'm like, okay, fine. I will go to Palm Beach. Then he's like, I want to take my daughter to Disneyland. Okay. I'm like, okay, this is before Uber, whatever. I rent a Suburban. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, okay, we we left in the morning. He's smoking cigarettes, like with a filter, like he looks like he's from Hollywood in oh, 1928. Right. The, yeah. The, you know, like old, the holder, he's old school. He's, cigarette holder thing, this yeah. is a former communist, communist party official who became a guy who probably has hundreds of millions of dollars because he happened to be the manager of an oil refinery. And he controlled oil, I believe, uh, a region the size of France. I mean, he's not poor, okay? Right, he's not doing too bad. We had a fine relationship. I got to know him over the course of several years and sadly also passed away. But he did something incredible for me. We're driving from Palm Beach to Orlando to Disneyland so his 10-year-old daughter can see Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, the most American of things. Oh, yes. And... The, the road is very flat. We're in Florida and we're in central Florida and there's really nothing to see except for signs for attractions. But he notices a Colonel Sanders and then two exit and eight later a Colonel Sanders. Like I'm talking about one of these signs that go up hundreds of feet in the air. Yep. Like the sun hasn't come out yet. So it's still lit up and you get this creepy idea that like, you know, Colonel Sanders is everywhere. And so he, you know, one exit Colonel Sanders, next exit Colonel Sanders. So he goes... In Russian, and I'm going to say it in Russian for your listeners. That's fine. Which means, who's this damn Lenin man? (laughs) And in that moment, I was blown away as a child of this duality that this guy expressed what the hell I was doing in one sentence. Because I thought about that my whole life. They, They completely idolize their military leaders, their cosmonauts. These are the people that they make gigantic portraits of, Uh all right? It's not like they're making portraits of like celebrities. It's their military leaders throughout that, you know, 70-year period who were idolized as heroes. But we have our own heroes too, okay? Yes, we do. And Colonel Sanders, I got to read his biography and I got to go to the first KFC years later in Corbin, Kentucky. And I was made honorary Colonel of Kentucky myself, which is really kind of remarkable. Well, congratulations <laughs> Thank on Thank you. That. I am Colonel Kellner. That is true. <laughs> you don't have to salute me but once. But, but the truth of the matter is this guy – uh, bless him, said everything to me without being direct. He's, he's like, what's going on here? It's that cultural duality that that proved, I'm like, this is what my first series is going to be. And at that moment, I'm like, okay, it's called Moscow Made, American Born. This is happening. And uh, I'm going for it. And I did. Wow. That was intense. Sorry, man. No, that's all right. <laughs> that's how you fly. No one's ever asked before. Let's move on to this question. I'm going to get a little specific about some of the other shows and other series that you're working on. And um, I want to say that you're, you're probably still working on some of these series, like uh, Dollar City. Mm-hmm. I'm finishing up Dollar City, sure. So uh, with that, um, how does uh, Dollar City define the concept of capitalism and why? I am fascinated by this idea that I don't know anything about camping streams, fishing. I am the kind of guy who knows how to sit down and order a Branzino at a restaurant. I wish I could say I'm more outdoorsy. 
But growing up in a suburban environment, I was very aware of the signage that I saw around it. And no one goes, make a right on Old Georgetown Road. People like, make a right at the McDonald's or make a right at the Popeye's or whatever. Right. Like these signs these landmarks. Right, become markers. And when you're a kid on a bike, you see it dozens of times a day. Throughout the course of a lifetime, it's thousands, okay? So I'm making a very specific argument that the works that I express in signage are landscapes. They're earnest enough of being called, quote unquote, of the natural world, okay? I'm specifically arguing for this point. And I also just love the graphic design of these signs. And these signs are meant to induce desire. And the signs that I'm doing for Dollar City, I'm making them very sexy. I'm, I'm kind of putting, you know, really nice texture on them, really saturated colors. But right. at the same time, a lot of them have a lot of hurtful kind of agenda behind them, you know? So like a piece that I made like that says pizza jumbo slice, credit and debit cards accepted. A lot of times, you know, that's a horrible thing. You're not advertising pizza. You're advertising, you know, financial incompetence in a lot of ways. Lot it's of convenient. Ways it's yeah. convenient. But at the same time, people are advertising going out of business sales. People are advertising three-day sale final days. People are advertising fast cash loans, checks cashed. And you notice these patterns. And as I'm traveling, I'm noticing that what looks like a grand opening sale isn't necessarily a good thing because they've been having the grand opening sale since they've opened. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> right. And yeah. so working from this Russian point of view, going back 10 years to work that became Moscow Made American Born series like Centennial of the Square that, that was really kind of became the root of my Solaris project. I got to know Soviet propaganda really well. But essentially now, in addition to this idea of kitchen cliche, I'm trafficking very specifically in American propaganda and American slogans. And so Dollar City is a nice title for kind of a deconstruction of what American slogans are at this moment. You know, going out of business is good for business. And it's really harmful for people who get suckered into it. Oh, yes. And these signs have taken a dark turn. Like since the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of what used to be these check cashing places have turned into vape shops. People are just trying to get rent and they're using whatever language, any kind of semiotics they'll use for their signage to look quote unquote cool, Instagrammable, whatnot. But I can kind of see through it really kind of well because of the background that I have. The Soviets did it 100 years ago and oh, yeah. better. Oh, yeah. The Solaris series that I'm really, really proud of was all about finding Russian propaganda posters that have text and figuration to them. I took out all of that text and any kind of body form and I was left with an interesting pattern with this idea of a lot of the posters has the sun on it. The sun is in like the happy sun. This is our sun. This is our day, a new chapter, a new life. But when you take out everything but the sun, you are left with the sun shining on nothing. And that was a great metaphor to continue working with these posters. I feel myself doing the same thing here, but there's nothing to edit out. These are ready-made signs that I am just remaking in the language of fine art, you know, canvas, paint, whatever. They function both as signs and as fine art. And I'm actually interested in that kind of middle ground because the duality yeah, that doing. yeah there's something to it and I'm not saying you know Andy Warhol might have discovered it his way early, it his uh, way. early 60s but this is really kind of I'm not a street artist but I am taking elements of the street and putting it into the gallery and that's what I really wanted to kind of argue for that this is my 
landscapes. These signs are real. I know where these signs are. A lot of them don't exist. I feel a complete responsibility to get to them while they're still there because the language, the graphic design of these signs, the, the topography, it's going to the wayside because Jeff Bezos invented a technology where you can have a sign delivered to you same day. And, yep. and you can design it on your laptop and it's not going to be the fonts that were prevalent. You know, some of these signs have been out there for 20 years. Right. Yeah, I was going to comment on that is that everyone has seen these signs. It's that they're so ambiguous that are so everywhere, like you've been saying, that you can't help it. Just it almost fades over. And the fact that you, you brought it to attention does bring yet another level of basically how like kind of a sinister side of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I wanted to comment on too is that looking at this in line or it doesn't really do justice because looking at them in person, you see the texture, that you, they're brighter, they're bolder in person. And, and this makes the argument of uh, digital art versus a reality art here is that at the end of the day, this is in my preference, you know, seeing something physically there. I don't think these would work as prints. The texture, the fact, so that they're, the fact that uh, while you're in my studio, look at the edges. I mean, they're clean they're and very, they're by, by design. They're, yeah. they're masked off because I want there to be a tension between what, what's a fine art painting versus what's a sign. I collect signs. I, I have a few in my studio that I'm happy to, to, to show with you that are particularly crazy. But these things here, when the right light is on them and they're isolated from the street, you know what I'm saying? Like when you see a new development or you see a tire shop, you know, they're advertising these flags. You kind of know that these kind of signs are going to be shown there. But when you take them and you put them in a white cube gallery, it takes on a completely different context. Yeah. And it's funny. Satire certainly plays a role throughout everything I do. I really kind of like being in that gear. But, you know, satire isn't comedy and it's not designed to be. I showed Dollar City in a, in a gallery in Boston, a Beacon Gallery, and I really liked myself seeing what I made come to life. I can't show 20 signs. I don't have a studio big enough, but I needed the assist from the gallery to say, hey, we're going to show this and we want you to come in and look at it. I understood what I was doing when I went to the opening. It was really kind of overwhelming because it was all very pretty, but at the same time, it wasn't about being pretty at all. When you see, again, words like going out of business or, well, one of my favorite ones is a sign that says, buy one, get one free. You know, I'm not going to be the guy that says, oh, this is my painting, buy one, get one free. That joke isn't funny to me, but essentially that line is everywhere. It even has its own abbreviation called BOGO, which I didn't know until I figured, you know, like BOGO is a thing, buy yeah, one, I, get one free. Oh, okay. And, and okay. so it's everywhere, but by taking it away from the context of where you would see it and the neighborhoods that you would see it and putting it in, you know, a fancy gallery under fancy lights, it takes on a completely different dimension. And that's what I'm interested in. And that's my job as I, I don't think of myself as a painter, but as an artist, I want to put things that aren't meant to be seen in, in a completely different context. Since I was a kid, I was collaging things. And, and this is just a fancy way to collage. Yeah, I, I could say it's you a fancy way collage. You know what I'm saying? Sculptural, yeah. you know, yeah. they're all they're all inch and a half stretcher bars. And I'm creating, it is, when I'm doing a show, it is an immersive environment. It is an installation of its own making. Well, the first time I did see your work was at the Umbrella back, what was it, 2018? 2019. 2019. Was, and I had yeah. a classroom. And, and you yeah. know, shout out to No Kings for putting that together and, right. and Collection 14 for allowing Martha's Table, recognizing that, okay, Martha's Table is a community center in what was an underserved neighborhood, 14th Street and U. Mm -hmm. Now, good luck trying to find an apartment there for less than half a million dollars. You exactly. know what I'm saying? It's a little oh, yeah. strange. It's, oh, yeah. All of it goes to the fact that the developer said, okay, I'm going to take this building down. What they did with the money that they got for this building is they built two schools that are actually in need of schools, one in Columbia Heights, one, I believe, in Anacostia. And they said, we're going to keep the historic facades, but what we want to do 
more than anything, is to welcome back artists to the space. There were nine classrooms total, or nine artists and or curators were chosen to do whatever they wanted. Yeah. I got my choice of classroom. I'm like, okay, this is a building that's been here for 60, 70 years, something like that. I'm going to completely embrace that it's going to be destroyed and uh, kind of create what I thought it would be a bomb shelter for the next Cold War. And my curator, who coined this idea, got it from visiting my studio bathroom where I kind of had nowhere to store stuff. So my bathroom became, the bathroom in my studio became like this extra room yeah. for stuff. And that stuff, without me knowing it, marked a lot about my own identity, you know, stuff I've collected my whole life, things that are weird, things that are awesome, things that are kind of don't go together, but somehow they do. And he's like, this is the show that I want to do. And out of that, his idea was to do this bomb shelter. And we didn't know that everyone would have their own version of the bomb shelter a year later. And yeah. so I was really hoping that show would travel. It was wildly successful. Almost like 15,000 people came to see that show in two different locations. It was up in D.C. for the weekend of Umbrella where it got, you know, 12,000 people came in. AOC came in to see it. It was so nice to be able to talk about my process for a D.C. audience because I positioned myself as an international contemporary artist. That was by strategy. Yeah. But I never got to show in D.C. I'd be showing in New York in group shows in Los Angeles. I had a show in Paris like as part of a group show. And I'd never shown in D.C. before that outside of George Mason University. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved being able to connect with an audience. And then that kind of window was gone for a couple of years. And we really wanted that show to travel. But I think everyone doesn't want to go through bomb shelter life again, so to speak. Well, so to speak, yeah. Well, I wanted to pivot back to real quickly the, about Dollar City and the fact that uh, one of the things that struck me when I looked at it or when I have seen it, uh, images of, was George Collins' comedic take on basically commercialism. And uh, he did a piece in uh, one of his comic stand-up things on an HBO special called Overall Diseased. Mm -hmm. And he goes through basically all the same phrases that you are doing oh, too. Cool. So it's almost like uh, you and you're channeling him. I like Carlin a lot, obviously. Yeah. He's, he's something. He's, he's, he's amazing. Because he's very critical of American capitalism. And he had no qualms saying that to people. We're living in, I call it end stage capitalist times. Yeah, right? I, so I, like, I think and I we talk about, that. and we, we're, we're going to talk about barcodes, of course, but this right. idea of objectification and commodification is, on, and, is, everywhere. is everywhere, right? Is everywhere. I got back from Art Basel. I was there for, for two days. I think you were there for two days. Yeah, for Hot 48. Yeah, yeah I was there for 48 hours. And, and I came back, and like there was news stories coming out of Art Basel saying, this sold for so much, this sold for so much. And the only thing people aren't talking about the art. People aren't saying like, okay, this is kind of something that makes you think or, you know, Hank Willis Thomas has something interesting to say. Right. They just talk about the numbers, you know, and the numbers is the story. And that's really kind of disgusting in a lot of ways. And opportunities are being missed over and over again. And Dollar City plays to that as well, because, you know, I'm making art about fast cash loans. Yeah. And it's really, really pretty. And the topography is really, really great. There's dollar, there's dollar signs everywhere. Yeah. But I'm sad that I have to do that because that really shouldn't be the case, right? Well, that's the story you're telling. You're holding up a mirror to the viewer and to others saying, hey, look, this is what's going on. We're being saturated and commoditized. It, messaging is all around us yeah. and money is the message these days. Everywhere I go when there's a conversation about art, in a matter of one minute, money will come into the equation. Yeah, it does. And, and in mass media, when I'm reading stuff about art, out with the exception of several specific art journals, 
it's almost exclusively about the transactional nature of art. Right. And Carlin might have picked up to that, you know, I mean, like we're, we're, I think he did. how we're sold, how, you know, how we're always being sold to no matter what, no amount of consumption is enough. And I recognize as an artist, I always thought if I can just make a living being creative, that's always been the goal. Yeah, I kind of can relate to that. Yeah, I just wanted to make a life for myself that can make stuff and make a living making stuff. Yeah. That's all I could ever hope for. And I don't know if I'm there yet or not. But the point being, to some people, the answer is always more. You know, how much money do you need? The answer is always more, right. more, more. And that really is an American export, right? It is. That's like we invented that thing and we've exported it to the world. Yep. And a lot of our troubles are caused because of it. But at the same time, as it relates to art, it's really become a negative. And uh, that's what stemmed the barcodes so idea. I was going to say, let's segue into barcodes. Mm -hmm. So sure. how does barcodes reflect the art market today and why? And we kind of already touched on it. Yeah, so. it's very much a reaction. Try talking to someone about art. And, you know, outside of in art school, like, uh, yeah, you're talking about art. A lot of my friends are left with an art degree and have no idea how to live as artists because they were never informed of this moneyed nature that they're about to get into mm -hmm. and how to represent themselves, how to hustle. That's not a class you take. You no, know, there's not I a mean, class they offer on yeah, hustling. I mean, That's yeah. true. And so I'm coming to art from the hustling point of view. You know, I, I did things a little backwards, perhaps. Maybe. But maybe, arguably, everyone goes there. I'm proud of my insecurities route in, into things. And I, I think it's only made me a better storyteller and a better listener, you know, and in and, and terms of a receiver, that I'm my job is to just pick up on things and travel and, and get bring things back. Yeah, I would agree with that statement. I'm really, really concerned that when people read about art, it could be Washington Post, it could be New York Times, whatever, money comes into the equation way too fast. And that becomes entertainment, okay? So in barcodes, I had a very, very specific idea. I'm going to take the 30 most expensive paintings ever sold at auction or privately that have been made public, okay? And I'm going to trace out the figurative elements of each of those paintings, okay? So in 2017, there was a questionable Leonardo da Vinci of questionable provenance yeah, that was like, sold for $450 million, that's right, okay? Yeah. It comes out to about a, over a million dollars uh, per square inch or some, some, some nonsense like that. Crazy yeah. math like that, so, yeah. Something like that. And so I'm just going to trace out this portrait of Christ and essentially make a barcode put a barcode on top of it. It's a very simple thing. And I'm like, holy, th this works. I mean, there, there's a point to all this. And you'll never hear about this Da Vinci because it's always going to be called the $450 million Da Vinci. There is a uh, Gauguin that, that's in my portfolio that's called uh, When Will You Marry? And mm -hmm. it, it's from his Tahitian series. And yep. it's two women that I've cut out, put a barcode on that which because it sold for $300 million. And the figuration, the you can see these lines, you can see these forms. And this connection with commerce is always going to be there forever for that piece. It, it could much. be Jasper John's American Flags. It could be um, Malevich's Supremacist Composition. It, since the project, David Hockney sold a piece for $90 million. We've been known as the $90 million Hockney. The money becomes the subject, verb, predicate, prefix, suffix of it all in framing people's tastes almost because, oh, maybe this piece is more expensive because it's a better painting. And that's just upsetting. That is upsetting because that's how some people are viewing it now. Oh, right. Some people think that it's expensive also because of size, you know, not necessarily because uh, when you look at the Mona Lisa, it's tiny and yet it's priceless, you know, but once again, you're quantifying. But the one I also wanted to add too is the whole Beeple 
NFT blow yeah, up where yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, those 5,000 paintings mm -hmm. are no, like not, paint, one, not paintings. They're just, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Thank you, sir. <laughs> thank you for correcting me. Uh, the digital work mm -hmm. is like each one is 14,000. Is that what it comes down to? Yeah. 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 That certainly has come up since Dollar City. And I, I have a friend who's actually wildly successful in as an NFT artist. Yeah, I'm not knocking it. Makes, makes it very I, right. I have my own thought about NFTs and we, I'm right. happy to talk about it. I just think it's another gearbox for artists to be in like another medium. Yeah. I, I want artists to make as much money as they possibly can. I, I, I mean I, I can criticize money and at the same time I want, you know, working class artists to be able to make a living. I get that. I right? get, yeah, I agree with you. I think concerning art history, there used to be a moment in American press that'd be like, hey, Jasper Johns has something really interesting to say. Or, you know, hey, Jean-Michel Basquiat is doing these really, really important paintings that really kind of are expressive of a very personal experience and, you know, be that, that kind of qualify living on Lower East Side, you know, his interest in anatomy, you know, Picasso, and he's kind of collaging these wonderful paintings together. He has something interesting to say. Now it's just, oh, this is really expensive. You have to go and see it. It's being talked about. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And, and I don't know how young people relate to that. I really kind of question if it's as negative as it could be because, uh, you know, they're looking at NFTs and they're looking at the same thing. This NFT, here, an example, a story that was circulated in national media. Oh, a 12-year-old artist sold out his show because his NFTs, he, as a 12-year-old, he's made a million dollars or something like that. Right, yeah, yeah. That's the story that you come out with. I understand having visited Art Basel several times I recognize that it's a little bit of a stock market. It's a little bit about performance. A lot of things are pre-sold to galleries that are getting marketing for the fact that they can say this is sold within the first hour of such. There, oh, yeah, there's exactly. a performance aspect to it. I, I get it. It's undeniable. Everyone wants to be able to say this sold out before 11 o'clock, this sold out before 1 o'clock. I understand that money is part of the story, but it doesn't have to be all of the story. And it really saturated. Same with the NFTs. I think the NFTs represent a completely different set of aesthetics. And I've been told from a serious NFT artist, he's like, who knows people? He, he's like, Mark, you know, I think a lot of artists will be successful kind of cashing in their name for NFTs because maybe they're established artists with, you know, New York and Los Angeles representation, museum artists who can be afforded a little bit more as NFTs. And I think people will latch onto that, you know, which I'm all for, you know, but I think young people like who are, you know, just kind of emerging artists, mid-career artists to transfer to NFTs is a completely different language. And it represents a different set of aesthetics because the digital artists are not fine artists. And it's a very different form of expression. I would agree with you. It is a different form of an expression. I always thought of, especially back in, I guess it was 2018, 2019, I always thought of like NFTs and uh, uh, the ledger that's attached to blockchain mm -hmm. or the blockchain technology is a great way for be able to keep track of who owns stuff, you know? And I, I didn't realize at the time but how big that NFTs would have become. So uh, moving on, uh, how did this abstract idea uh, of Pleasure's Promise come to be and why? I've showed Pleasure's Promise twice. I showed Pleasure's Promise in the street at Culture House on 700 uh, Delaware Avenue Southwest. And not a lot of people saw it because no. I did it during COVID. Not a lot of people are going to venture out to Southwest except for the people that live in Southwest. There's no kind of event that I can put around it. You know, it's not like you can have an opening for a mural, but they gave me real estate and they... Uh, Culture House, who been incredibly supportive of my practice, said, hey, we will pick up the oh, cost cool. of materials, which is helpful because yeah. if you notice, wood is expensive. Oh, and, and, time, you know, and, you know, yeah, well, I want to talk about that because yeah. it was incredibly difficult to source. 
So some of the wood that you see in Pleasure's Promise was the same wood that was used to board up stores during Black Lives Matter and the the COVID shutdowns. So like the, the wow. and there was a guy. Uh, on 7th Street who collected all of this wood saying, hey, artists, whoever, carpenters, if you need three-quarter inch ply, uh, we have collected stuff from the shutdown. And so that's not for me to write in my curatorial text. That motivated me. Before Pleasure's Promise, as a mural, I made the 16 paintings as mm-hmm. word, word paintings. So allow me to back up for a little bit and yeah. go back to the origin story of how I made this series. Please do. And then how that is separates itself from the mural. I live on 14th and V streets. Okay. I drive a lot around the DMV. I have things to do in Rockville. I have things to do in Alexandria. I have things to do in Ellicott city. You know, I can easily pull a hundred miles in one day, just being here. I'm that guy. Wow. All right. I listen to a lot of NPR. All right. I've had it. <laughs> I'm sick of, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of irrigation projects in Guatemala. I've heard it all. I'm just like, and I know when to turn it off, but being a driver in this environment, I also have to get gas. And there's a gas station that has the cheapest gas, and it's on 15th and U Street. It's a Sunoco station right near my house. And it's the kind of Sunoco station that at night you have to walk over a person to go and put cash down, like for the, the guy get, at this, yeah. the guy who's like, you know, managing the store. And so you have to use your credit cards for just safety's sake. Okay. And I pull up, pump up, and I see a sign for Newports in the window that says the word pleasure. And I look to 90 degrees straight ahead now, and I see an apartment complex being built. And it's like, welcome new residents, you know, right. studio life. It wouldn't necessarily be the same word pleasure, but it was a synonym of pleasure. Oh, yes. I totally get that. And yeah. I noticed that this is a little messed up. All right. And so I'm shocked by what I'm seeing because I'm having a moment. I'm like, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to be this guy and like give a year of my life, not not full time, but like, you know, that that's how long it took to pull off these 16 paintings for a lot of different reasons. Who's going to find synonyms of the word pleasure to work it in the language of, to find these what I call white words, so to speak, antiquarian words that I think are no longer used, but are funny to say, like splendiferous, hunky-dory, devil may care, yeah. and to write them back in the language of Newport advertising. And I'm like, well, I probably am going to be that guy. And it's I'm ambivalent about it because going back to days in Rockville, 13, 12, 13, 14 years old, I, uh, I had a Playboy collection. And in the back of these Playboy collections, you could see advertisements of cigarettes. And you saw constantly this bombardment of white people having fun, skiing, vacationing, surfing, smoking, playing tennis, doing things that were completely anomalous to my life. I mean, like right. I didn't do you any of those no things. no association to that. Yeah. yeah. And I just knew that no white people smoke Newports because my parents split. My dad lived in Southwest. My mom lived in Rockville. I would go to Southwest on weekends or every other weekend. And kids that I played with there, port was their thing. You know, Mm. like it was not a white thing, so to speak. And I saved all my ads. I was collaging and I was creative and I was archiving as a kid. And in my studio, although, you know, this audience can't see, can open up these flat files and show you everything. So flat files are full of just research when you were a kid. What I have in my hands right now are my childhood ads of Newports, what I just described to you. So I saved these and I recognized everything that these folks are doing is not targeted to the audience that this product is geared for. 
and I felt the need to call him out on it. And we talk about this idea of like late stage capitalism and how are these beautiful graphics affecting people's lives. And I'm not saying design will change the world. That I'm not that guy. Mm, yeah. But I've never seen someone do it. And if I've never seen someone do it, I'm going to do some research. And if it hasn't been done, I believe it fits the trajectory of someone who started in Russian-American duality, moved into exploring uh, and distorting art history, distorting Soviet propaganda, getting into American propaganda. This fits the bill. Like if I'm on a trail, this is an obstacle that I want to overcome, mm. okay? And so I started looking for synonyms of these words and – I thought that this would be a nice little project. I can make 16 paintings. It'll be a series of work. I would love to be able to keep them together. And maybe a few weeks after I finished them, I got a call from Culture House saying, hey, how would you like to make a mural? We have the space for, we're doing this thing called the Avant Garden. We have this new space and we have all this wood that will support plywood and we'll, you know, we'll pay for the expenses. You just have to do the work. You need help. You pay for your assistance, so to speak. I have a great relationship with them. So I did it. And for better or for worse, thus this mural was born. More people saw the mural than they ever did the actual paintings. Actual pa yeah. yeah, The mural was just lonely after it debuted because no one went to Culture House. No. And no one, there was no events to kind of have at the same time in tandem with the mural. And so it was out there. I have very lovely pictures of it. But and there's uh, a video on your website. Uh, there's a video of its making, which Culture House also, we went half seas on that, which I appreciate to be able to get because documentation is such an important part of my practice. I would agree. I yeah. want people to know what I'm doing and yeah. I want curators from all over to recognize what's happening here in DC because I think that project is very much indigenous to DC, for DC, and about DC, okay? And there's a political and social commentary going on and I'm not overt about it, but it was when... I got the opportunity from No Kings Collective and, and Collection 14 to say, hey, we're inviting you back to Umbrella 2 and you can bring whatever project you want. And I'm like, I... Hmm, let me think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, got I got a mural that's 100 feet that's in storage at a friend's studio because I can't absorb it myself. I would love to be able to show this and to show it indoors is a completely different context. I could put light on it in the way that I want to. I have a friend who is an exhibit designer who's taking a leave of absence from his work and I can have him come over, steal his ideas on how to best exhibit this in a way that can be ad advantageous for from an audience point of view. Yeah. He, he figured out a lot of things for me and, and we solved a lot of problems together. And so we just set off on this idea of like, let's make it as sexy as possible because the better it looks the harder the commentary is, okay? And let me go ahead and make prints with another former student of Dennis O'Neill, who I trust as a, a screen printer. Let's make prints of these words because I don't want just for wealthy people to be able to afford my stuff. I want to be, I used to collect posters and I used to collect prints and I want to offer something to young people that would just put me up in their living room or dining rooms just to be able to have a connection with them because in a few years, those fine folks are going to be art collectors themselves. And I want yeah. to encourage that. It was done to me. It's not cost prohibitive at this point in my life to be able to do that. And okay, I have a huge 10-foot wall made available to me. Let's rent a projector that I can scan all of these pictures of Newports and go ahead and kind of put a soundtrack together. And then I'll also show the paintings, you know, I'll build a false wall and or a wing wall is what it's called and mm -hmm. a four-sided exhibit 
that is worthy of any gallery in New York City, uh, in Chelsea, like a white, or in Art Basel. It would have been an amazing thing to see. Oh, it would have but fit I, in, yeah. I don't have that opportunity yet. Um, <laughs> I, I'm doing it for my people. And I live across the street and like, how, how better to do this? And it worked. On opening night, we didn't anticipate like 15,000 people, although 20,000 people did RSVP. You know, a lot of people say they're coming. There's a difference between- There's a difference. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when am I going to be engaged with that many people after just sitting at home for the last, you know, essentially two years? And uh, people came out and I was just so happy to see them. And I kind of created this immersive space for it. People would come up to me, African-American audience would come up to me. And I had an African-American curator. I'm like, hey, man, what if I get canceled? Like there's a relative fear that I'm a white guy making art about race and class in Washington, D.C. And he's like, Mark, your intentions are incredibly noble. I got your back and so-and-so's got your back. You know, in the worst case scenario, you have nothing to be ashamed of. This is important, impactful art. Well, once again, you're holding up a mirror to I'm what's trying. going on. I, the, the aspiration is there, yeah. but who, who knows? It's finally going to meet its audience. And everyone loved it and everyone understood the humor of it. And I had folks, African-American, non-art collectors come up to me like, what the hell's going on here, man? I like Newports. Like, what's happening? And I'm like, okay, so I get that I'm a white dude making art, again, about race in Washington, D.C., and it's about class. And I'm letting you know that that is my Playboy collection, or that those are <laughs> images that are, are ripped off from my Playboy collection. I am noticing as a kid that it's just white people having fun. And that is prohibitive, not just to me, you know, socioeconomically, whatever, culturally, it's prohibitive to African-American communities. And there are hurtful agendas at work here. Oh, yeah. I worked really hard to make my mural look sexy because when, when you see one or two, it's ha-ha, you know, but at that impactful level, uh, by 64 feet by 16 feet, it really does kind of set off this darkness, really lets people know. And yeah. people were like, oh man, this isn't just graphic. I'm like, no, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I, I really kind of, there's an intention here. There's a body of work that this is a part of. You know, there's a lot of storytelling here. I finally got to tell that story. And I talked to everyone, buy a $25 print for me, that's great. Buy a painting for me, that's great. I'll talk to anyone because I've just been hungry for that connection. I've been in a studio for a long time. I mean, it, when I say I've been at home, it's not like I was doing nothing. I've been busy. Well, but nonetheless, <laughs> you haven't been out and about. But it's part of my job is to let people know where I'm coming from, at least halfway. Right. In the hope that they can meet me the other half. And they did. And so I, I'm really hopeful that someone will take notice and say, hey, I would like that mural to travel. I would love to be able to show it in Atlanta. I'd love to show it in Chicago. I want it to be part of a, a community project that people can kind of learn about hmm. what conceptual art is, yeah. kind of using the advertising language that they're surrounded by. Young people came to Umbrella 2 and they, of all things, young people are the people that get my stuff the most. They totally understand what I'm doing. Even when I went to the White House with a Soviet-esque banner that is a gibberish to a Russian person, I'm illiterate in Russian. I can't really read it, but I can spell out certain words. And what I spelled out using Cyrillic was the word huge, which at the time was Donald Trump's favorite word. But to a Russian person, this is at the height of the Mueller report and all that kind of thing, the Russia Gate kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't necessarily make it out what it is. People, it's like, excuse me, sir, what does that say? What does that say? And I'm like, oh, it says huge in Russian. Only phonetically, and you'd have to know what the Cyrillic language is to be able to get it out. And right. that kind of double meaning is kind of where I live between Russia and America. But all those young people, they're like, oh, I totally get it. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And we were able to take a really cool photograph of me and, the, and a collaborator of mine with that piece 
in front of the White House as part of the performance of what that piece was about. And they got it. And they got it for Pleasure's Promise, too. The word play is kind of a stepping stone to get into bigger themes. Hmm. Oh, I was going to also add to that, introducing people to a more conceptual art. When people ask me, like, who are you? I'm like, I'm a visual artist. And like, what kind of art you do? And then I always have to say, and my wife also has to say, oh, my, my husband's a conceptual artist. What does that mean? Next question. The idea of the piece is the piece itself. That's why I put in that question, abstract idea, because that's another the definition. The idea is the thing. And I'm concept, not the first yeah. to say it. Through Duchamp, who had to answer the same questions. Uh, I'm not putting myself in any kind of comparison. But I am aware that my idea and the simplest expression of that idea is my job. And as a conceptual artist, I'm problem solving all the time. How do I get simpler? How do I edit this out? How do I edit this out? And my way of editing is just sticking with these words. Hmm. I, I, I can call myself a sign painter. There's a writerly process to what I'm doing. I sometimes take a persona of someone else's words. But even when I write beauty supply open sale, those are four words. You know, there's syllables in there. There's letters. I'm saying, I'm also making a point that it's a conceptual art idea that the larger that my words are, in this day and age, the more people believe the words that I'm saying. And trafficking in false idolatry and false representation, people are falling into these traps that I'm setting for them by making words that are big, that are nonsense words. What I just described in the performance huge. that I did in the right month, the huge, or even in these splendiferous or uh, joie de vivre, you yeah. know, like it's all silly, but at the same time, intentional and when it's impactful as part of a series of 15 other works, people react to it completely different. And it's a real shame that, of all people, it was Donald Trump who made that proof positive for me. The bigger your word, regardless what the word, the more truth is. Yeah. And that's something that I've been studying since, you know, looking at the art of the Russian Revolution mm -hmm. that I, I got to mess around with a little bit. This is a formula that's consistently worked in terms of fooling people. This idea of propaganda, how do you define it? The films that I've made have certainly been on that topic as well, more so probably than a lot of my paintings. But the idea is I am the author of the idea, and I'm also, the care that I give in terms of its simplest expression is what I do for a living. Uh, what motivated you to make Nyet My President? Nyet My President is a short film that I made, and I believe it's about 17 minutes, and I shot nothing of it. It's all a montage of clips that were found on different different platforms of world media. Donald Trump was president at the time of its making, and Donald Trump is someone who's kind of never really engaged with DC in any way, shape, or form. None. Ever. And uh, which is fine, you know, like whatever. It, it doesn't matter to me if he does or doesn't. But I noticed that, you know, he's just, he's most comfortable indoors, on TV, doing, you know. What he does. Yeah, doing whatever it is that he does. Yeah. Right? And, and in a lot of ways, he's an amazing performance artist. It truly, uh, like it's a really you know, kind of incredible. I, I kind of have to agree with you on that. Incredible, incredible uh, thing yeah. to have to say. But Vladimir Putin takes a different, approach. Way different approach. And he's a guy who finds tigers. He goes diving, like snorkeling and finds antiques. He sees migrating cranes and goes up in a winged kind of, what is that? I, I, what is that? What is uh, this called? So it's a glider. Yeah. And, and the birds follow him. Yeah. So he's created this incredible, and you know, he rides shirtless on a hurt. He, he catches fish. He does camouflage. all those things. So his persona is that of superhero. Like right. for real. He's for real. He, he's intentionally marketing himself 
and and for his, you know, I don't believe the elections in Russia are real. It really doesn't matter. No. But like the way he aggrandizes himself is beyond absurd and comical. I almost have to respect the technique, okay? Yeah. Like he's putting himself on. When he's called out, it's like, well, I'm doing it for young people. I'm like, I freaking love that. I mean, I, I wish I wish I had a guy in my lifetime. Like like Obama took three-point shots and made them. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and like Obama was a little more accessible in a lot of ways. Exactly. And got out there and shook hands and like does everything that isn't necessarily staged. And- and yet my president is uh, – is a, there's a double meaning in its title. So, so to answer your question, what the film does is aggrandize Putin in the way he's shown in internal media in Russia and, and shown in sympathetic outlets throughout the world. Right. And there was a score that was created for the uh, standalone exhibit for Solaris, which you saw at Umbrella, which then right. went to Culture House. Right. And that score I incorporate into the movie. It's like techno – East-West kind of connection, yeah. meaning it was done by a great composer here in D.C. named Kondotronics, Kai Filipczak. And I said, hey, man, I want to make a movie with your score and clips of Putin being a superhero. Beaten, and he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I totally get it. And when we actually did it, I thought it was going to be like four or five minutes. No, 17 minutes. There's that much material in there. And it just – it works. And if you define what propaganda is, it's the repetition of falsities to the point where it becomes truth based on the very point of its reference over and over again, and it's repetition. So what you're seeing isn't failure and repetition. You're seeing aggrandizement over and over again. You could be hypnotized and kind of see this as like godlike status. He's become an icon. And I kind of wanted to point that out in my 17 minutes. The narrative is kind of counterpointed by this double meaning of its title. Donald Trump is questionable if he was elected president, you know, so people are saying he's not my president. You know, I, I try not to be overtly political in my work. I don't want people to say, oh, he's a liberal, he's a conservative. That's really not my point in any of it. And I try to hide a lot of that as well. But what I really thought was interesting is that my liberal friends, they just don't want to acknowledge, even though Donald Trump's president of everyone, they don't, oh, he's not my president. I don't like what he's doing or, you know, what he's doing is dangerous, what, you know, all this kind of thing. So they just back off, not my president that resignation, that's a byproduct of something that is planned with an agenda, okay? Like, that's proven. Like, the Soviets did the same thing. But yeah, they did. His playbook is their playbook, right? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and so I wrote Nyet, Russian word for no, because in so many ways, I would want my president to be doing these crazy things, okay? <laughs> yeah. And there's comedy to it, but again, with the repetition, with the repetition, it gets darker over time, and it fits the kind of ability that my work has been able to kind of channel. And it also kind of points out this mythos yeah, that you just yeah. mentioned about being a superhero because it just seems like it. how could it get crazier that he's spearfishing and then all of a sudden, like you just said about petting a tiger and he's like doing something with a big stick, getting a tiger out of a cage. It's it, it just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's like, how on earth are you able to do that? I don't know if it can continue because I mean, like, I don't know what else there is to do. The only other thing he can do is go to space. You know, literally, that's which the only thing possible. he has left. Yeah, which with, he might do. Yeah, and like Donald Trump won't leave the White House. See, what, like that <laughs> yeah. was that was the that, that was the whole that was the idea, right? Yeah. Like yeah. he, he might go to his golf course, but he owns the golf course. You see but what I'm saying? His golf Being course. out in the world, right? Being out in the world is just so. It was a a propaganda play, and it is absurd. Yeah, and and, and I like that the film work that I do counters the visual uh, painting and and that kind of thing. Well, and and Jason, I really yeah. want people to see the film, so I put it on my site for accessibility. But I really think if it ever gets into a gallery, it's played in, as part of Dollar City. There was a there was a Solaris kind of room, a back room where I got to show the uh, Russian Acting Hall of Fame, which is all the 
Russian villains played like since the 60s. Right. I, like, I, oh, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Done, done like with aggrandizing, you know, like gold murals and whatnot, trophies on top. It's a hall of fame of, of this kind of like squad of actors. Like I think there's 18 or maybe 20 of them now that is growing. Like people say, hey, man, what about that guy? I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy. I forgot well, about that, that guy. guy. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm still growing that. But I want this to be seen in galleries. I want my movies to have a life in institutionally. Right now they're like, oh, they're memes. They're not memes, but they play on meme culture a little bit. Yeah. Well, what I went back to is the fact that uh, Trump, he did seem to live in his own bubble. So having that other juxtaposition of having Putin out there in the wilds was completely the same way. Yes. Yeah. But people love him for it. Uh, you exactly. see what I'm saying? And, right. and like no one takes it seriously. But the the narrative that this is even possible, he puts his head inside a tiger or something like that, or he goes into a hospital looking like a doctor that's and right. shaking the kid's hand and, and the yeah, kid is miraculously right. cured. Like, uh, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just amazing. It's not anything a president would ever do here, ever. Well, without all that being said, what advice would you give your past self and to other artists? I feel that I came to this a little late. And when I say this, I, you know, trying to make a living as an artist, all right? And uh, it didn't happen for me in my 20s. And I do feel like I'm making up for lost time. Certainly my experience has lent itself to be expressive. I was really lucky to show, after five years of working as an artist, I was lucky to show in a group show in New York City. Just to be able to say, oh my God, I'm showing on the Lower East Side and it's a fancy gallery and all that kind of thing. And uh, I had this group show in the summer and you know, no one went. It was a show of no consequence. But on my CV, it says, hey, you know, New York City, it was a big deal for me. Uh, no one in D.C. would show me at the time. And uh, I, I kind of had to position myself as other. I applied for the same grants. I applied for the same fellowships, you know, rejection after rejection. I'm just oh. trying to narrow down what I'm about and how I'm expressing myself in the world, okay? The owner of that art gallery is like, hey, let me give you some advice. If you want to be a professional artist, you need to be making 40 to 50 things a year. And I think someone else, a collector of mine, which I'm lucky to say, I have, I have a couple collectors that are really kind of supporting this practice, especially when in the early days when things got things were tough. Right. They're like, Mark, they, one of the guys did the math and he's like, that's one thing every nine days. And I'm like, yeah, th that's the thing. You have to be disciplined to do the same thing. Do it 50 times a year. Every nine days, you got to create something new. And I couldn't do that successfully until I kind of got into the pace of it. You know, I, I'm successful at that now because I figured out how to look at the world and how to not necessarily think about and obsess about one thing and not be so rigid with myself. And uh, my advice for my previous self is to just let things go a lot easier. Don't hold too many grudges. Just don't let a lot of BS affect your creative life. You know, you're going to take hits and there's nothing you can do about it, but you have to find a way to keep moving forward. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I'm, I'm guilty of being my worst enemy and my, my biggest critic, you know. I didn't have a lot of support at the beginning and uh, that was a lot of problems for me, um, but um, that changed. So my advice for artists is to know that your job isn't just to be in a studio by yourself making stuff. You have to go out into the world to try to find a community. And I would advise them to like find people that are creative in any way possible. It doesn't matter if they're musicians, painters, sculptors, photographers. Radio hosts. It, 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 radio hosts can be cool. <laughs> I, I, it, it just It's a question of just being around other creative people. It really sucks being alone in a room. And, and I've spent a lot of time just being that guy. And you have to like all of it. You can't just like 
one thing. Oh, that guy's a filmmaker. I'm a painter. Man, you have to, if, if it's art, you got to like all of it. There, there's nothing you can't dislike. And you have to learn everything there is to know about everything. And everything you do is expressive, you know? And uh, I lived a long time thinking about that being a positive, but it was actually a negative. And now it, it's a positive. And, you know, the negative side is by the wayside because I've been doing this long enough, whereas this is the only thing that I get to do now. And meeting artists was the genesis of that. Letting other creative people say, dude, I really like what you're doing. I loved being around grad students when I was in residency. They looked to me like, hey, I want to show you my stuff. Great. And uh, hey, this is really interesting. This connects with so-and-so. Or here's a book I want you to read. You know, I didn't have that access until later in my life. And that changed a lot for me. So no fear. You, you can't. That hmm. re- you have to just be willing to be completely open like a raw nerve and let life happen to you and then be able to express a little bit about that. In my case, I looked inward and looked at my own biography and said, this hasn't been done before. I'm going to investigate this. And it, and it took me to Dollar City. It took me to Barcodes. It took me to Pleasure's Promises. What it's going to now, I plan to do something, a major body of work about the shutdown. And uh, we'll talk about that next time, I hope. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Uh, We should. All right. Well, thank you, sir, for that. I appreciate that. I want to thank Mark for taking the time to do the interview. To learn more about Mark's work and to see it, go to his website at markkellner.com. And you can go to his Instagram page at markkellnerstudio, all one word. To hear this episode and past episodes of Artbox TNV, go to the website at artboxdnv.com. And ArtboxDNV is on Instagram at ArtboxDNV. Until next time, thank you for listening.